It was Tim Rice, with the help of Elton John, of course, who so eloquently nailed the theme of this week's show with their 1994 smash hit for the Disney classic The Lion King, The Circle of Life. The Circle, according to them, moves us all through crappy times, good times, till we find who we are, and of course that's paraphrasing from the song. For every beginning, there's someone about to take a step back. It's just how it is in the sport. You really can't be a world beater forever, unless you're Ed Whitlock. Alas, on this week's episode, we do not speak to Ed, but Crystal Hanty, a promising steepler with a full career ahead of him, and Jeff Harris. He's taking a step back after a storied career in the 800. A view from different points of the circle this week, and another episode from Brand Satchel's Track Factor Fiction, all on the way. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Jeff Harris, probably best known for his wicked run in 2012, qualifying for the London Olympics, getting himself a spot in the semis, all that good stuff. But what you may not know is that Jeff has been around for a while, leaving a storied career behind in his wake. Recently, he announced that he'd be taking a step back from the highest levels of competition, so I caught up with him to discuss. So, I, you know, I read a couple things um, and heard a couple things that you were, you were taking a step back from the sport uh, this year, which, which meant that I had to get you on just because, you know, you're, you're an influential runner who's, who's had a lot of really great success during your career. What spawned that thought of, of taking a step back from the sport? Why now and, and why this year? Well, I'm going to turn 30 next year. And it's about that time that I have to start considering, you know, where I want to go after this regardless if I put in another four years and did another Olympic push. And so I decided that in an effort to, like, clear my head up and decide what I really want to do, I, I should take a step back. At very least take a step back for a year from being from, – from chasing that, like, competitive, trying to hit standards, trying to make team things, and really just maybe get back to training for the fun of training and, and make it not so much about performance. And so I've decided to do that, and I, I can see it as a real possibility that – this lifestyle might be just perfect for me and I don't need to get back necessarily into being competitive. Uh, but that being said, like I'm not, I'm certainly not like a hundred percent counting it out. And my big objective is to get to the Eileen Meyer again next year, uh, regardless of what shape I'm in or what's going on with me, I'm going to race in the Eileen Meyer because if, it, if I am going to have a last race, it's going to, it's going to be here in Halifax. Um, you know, I've been coming to the Eileen Meyer for like 11 years now. I wasn't actually able to come this season. Uh, the 2016 season. So I want to finish up. I want to finish one good race there. For sure. For sure. You know, I, I've got to ask because I think every single runner, whether you're at the top or whether you're at the bottom, just gets uh, really stagnant with their, with their running at some time, which I think you kind of alluded to in, in that past statement. How, how mm-hmm. do you, how do you work through it? How do you personally, you know, get through that, that time of staleness where, where you aren't improving or whatever? How do you see the light and, and, you know, I guess your time of darkness, as corny as that sounds. Yeah, I, you know, I think what I did was I didn't, um, I never changed coaches or anything like that. I, I had such an amazing relationship with my coach, and so I never really wanted to, to make that jump. Um, I, I, I really believe in my program, and I believe in everything like that, and we made changes to, the, to how my training went. And I think for other people that might have been the right move, and, and maybe I should have, but I, ultimately I'm, I – I couldn't have been happier where I was. Like I really, it, it was never a dark place for me. Even in the seasons that I wasn't racing as well as I wanted to, I was still, I was still really enjoying myself. I still love this program. And, and I also love Victoria as a city where I've been for like the last four years. 
And so there was no chance I was getting out of there to pursue anything else. So I think as Canadian runners, we, we tend to, uh, unlike the Americans, we don't jump around coaches like, like they do. And I, not that I'm saying that that's the right answer either, but I think there's some, there's some middle ground there where sometimes you've got to try something new and, 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 you know, flip things on their head. And, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. So not to say that that was going to be the right answer for me by any means. Um, but, you know, I've been doing this. I made my first national team when I was 19, and now I'm 29. I'm going to be 30 in a few months. So I think after 10 years, sometimes that's, a, that's enough time to do anything. You mentioned uh, taking a step back from the sport. Uh, what does that mean for you? Because I know it means a lot of different things to a lot of different guys, but what specifically does it mean for you? Well, it's it, not very much apparently because I have it fully intent on training. I'm going to do a season of rabbiting. I'd like to I'd like to get in, and I've done rabbiting through my whole career. Has been um, with some good success. I've, I've, I consider myself a pretty good rabbit. I don't think anybody's ever been terribly disappointed in what I've done for them. So um, I'd like to get involved in that, and, and I'm certainly going to stay in the sport with my training group out in Victoria. We've spent the last couple of years building this group up, and we have like a really strong group of young runners right now. And I don't want to – I'm not going to take a step away from them. Um, you know, I was a big part of recruiting a lot of them. And I think a lot came knowing that, you know, knowing how great of a coach Heather is, but also my, that, that I was always going to stay involved in some way. And so um, really for me it was just the competitive side. You know, like chasing standards gets, like, bloody tiring and, 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 and like, disappointing all the time. Like, I've had a few bad seasons. And when, you're, when you have that fitness, I had the training in, and then the – the performance just doesn't come. I mean, you can come up with a million excuses, and and half of my half the time I didn't know what the missing component was. But ultimately, it was just like it's degrading, you know, going into a race thinking you, you're going to make that at least that step towards something, and then it and then it doesn't at all. So I think I just need a break from that. That's what I'm stepping back from is is that disappointment, you know. Track can be like a really big bitch. So yeah. So uh, you know, off mic we we were talking a bit. Uh, about maybe you trying to get some, some beer miles in the next year. You know, I, I've talked to, to Corey Gallagher and, uh, and Lewis Kent, guys who have really set the, set the track on fire in this past year. And I think that their key watching, and I think that they'd agree with me, is their, is their chugging times. Yeah, they're great runners, but I think their strength is in, in their chugging times. How, how do you feel about that? Where, where are you sitting at with, with this? So you got to understand something. Like, I'm an East Coaster. I started drinking beer when I was like nine years old and not drinking, like taking a sip from my father. Like this was like going and stealing beers, going downstairs, like at Christmas time with the family and stuff. And that was the only way you could drink it because you had to get rid of it as fast as you could because if the parents caught you, it, there was going to be hell. And so I've been chugging since, since I was in the single digit age category. Hmm. I, I feel very confident in my chugging. I know I need to, I, my biggest fear with it is really the, the, just running with that much volume in my stomach. That's what I have to train for. Um, I, I think I can handle the, that side of it anyway. So, but that being said, like those are some of the, like I was, I hung out with Lewis Kent and, um, you know, Belmore, those guys are big guys. They just have more volume in them. So for me, it's going to be about stretching out that stomach. For sure. For sure. You know, I, Taking, uh, you know, going from, from beer miles to, I want to talk about 2012 with you, just because 2012 was just such a crazy year for you, you know, overall. Uh, I think you hit standard twice going into the Olympics. You made it into the semifinals. Give me, uh, you know, 
tell me about that year, kind of sum it up. Uh, you know, what were the, what were the highlights for you? I like, if you rewind a couple years back, I had been making like all the inroads I was needing to make, <clears throat> but I wasn't able to 20, like I'm talking 2010, 2011, I was getting injured. I was having my own mental issues with racing and stuff. And I just wasn't able to actually like showcase the, the work I'd put in over those, those, uh, fall, winter springs of training. So 2012, though, like I think it was a big surprise to a lot of people. My coach and I both knew I was due for that. I put the work in. So for us, it was about like getting the job done. And so, but as an outsider, I mean, I, I ran my 10 all time fastest. I ran five consecutive PVs. Like it was, I mean, which was all like, not to, not to say we weren't happy and surprised ourselves a bit. Um, but the, the caliber like that, the level of running, we knew I was ready for it. I just needed to actually like, get it, make it happen in the race. And, and I just started doing it. And once you get on that spiral upward, I'm, I just rode that out. And so for us, making the Olympics was never like we wanted to make the Olympics. But if we did, Heather, and at that time with Wynn working with us too, like we knew that like making it wasn't good enough. I needed to run fast there. I wanted to get to the semifinal. I think the semifinal was probably like an optimistic thing to make. We weren't talking about, you know, Sorry, like we were preparing to race in the final. Uh, that that would have been such an insane long stretch that I think even, you know, none of us are going to believe that. But we knew I could make that semifinal. And so uh, we trained for that, and, and it worked out perfect. Uh, I got into that, and when I got to that semifinal, I was, like, I was in such a, like, you know, I was on cloud nine, but I was also so bloody tired. And so, like, I had given my all just to get there. And so I actually, that was probably the funnest race I've ever had because I actually really got to take it all in and, and actually just, you know, when they ran away from me with a hundred to go and I still ran my third all time fastest in the semi. Um, but when they sort of like put that gear in and ran away and I didn't have it, mm-hmm. it wasn't a disappointing feeling. It was just kind of like, okay, I got this far. This is, this was, this was good enough for now. And obviously at that time, the hope was, you know, I'll make that next step in Rio, but you know, you can't, you can't see that far into the future, but uh, yeah, 20, 2012 was amazing. Like, uh, it, it's like, for me, I hope it's this. I've seen a few, there's a few examples out there of athletes who have really, really great success. And, and you make reference to them, to, an, to a younger athlete or to an athlete that's out there that, where you can say, look, see, you, this can happen. Look what this person did. And I hope I can be that to somebody at some point where they can say, like, man, if, whether you're dealing with injuries or dealing with whatever problems you have, that, you know, it's always possible. Like, in 2011, I think I came seventh at nationals. The, like, the kid that was a training partner in our group beat me, you know, like, and if you go back to 2008, I didn't even make the final in 08, mm-hmm. um, but we put the work in, and if you do, if you actually get the work in and you're confident in it, like, you can get there. You know, it, it doesn't sound like you have really a lot of regrets at all, which is, you know, really refreshing to, to hear. Is there something that, that you would have done differently throughout your career, um, you know, knowing what you know now back then? Oh. Yeah, interesting. Um, man, that's a hard question. Yeah, no, I, there's probably a million things. I, if I actually had to come up with things, and I started listing them off, but that's I just never consider that. I look back at my like ten years. My tw- I spent my twenties doing track and being involved at a like at as big a level as I could, and I got to meet the greatest people. I got to travel all over the world. I got to represent my country a few times. Now, I would I would have loved to, to do it a few more, but I, I you know. I ultimately have to take a step back and say, I'm a five foot seven little white ginger kid <laughs> who, you know, like 
truly did get to like um get to just go on teams and have like the time of my life and so no i don't uh, i don't even consider it i had a blast and and to me like it's not over by any means and uh even if it's if my competitive career is done i'm going to be involved hopefully in a coaching aspect or, or some aspect i still would like to it, it, i love the idea of getting involved much more so with like invent organizing too you know I, some of the meets that i've have treated me well over the years i've got to I've got relationships with them, with the meet directors and seeing how they've grown a, um, a small meet into a huge meet and stuff. It's been really cool. And I'd love to get involved on that side too. So no, I, I mean, I think if you start thinking about regrets, it's easy to find some, but there's, no, there's not a lot of good comes out of that. So a lot of runners I find have, you know, a signature workout. Uh, I think Jeff Costin just last week on the show was talking about the, the Michigan workout and like how, you know, how legendary that is. Do you have anything like that that's, you know, kind of the Jeff Harris workout, you know, your your favorite go-to sort of thing? I, I, have, I have two. There's, there's the one workout that I got. I honestly, it's the one workout that's defeated me more times. Um, and it's, we have here in Halifax, back years ago when we used to do this, I haven't done this workout in a long time, but we used to do, we have a 600-meter hill, uh, Point Pleasant Park Drive. The Dalhousie team knows all about it. Hmm. And it's 600 meters. The first 400 is at a very steady gradient up. There's a little bit of a dip, and then there's another surge at the end. The last 80 meters really, it amps up even more. And it actually is like a really great reflection of how an 800 is in that, that you've got to get through that first 400, 500 range. You've got to get relaxed on that backstretch. You've got to be ready, and then you've got that last push. And so we would do six to eight of those with jog down recovery. And so time reference, like, you know, I, the fastest I ever got up, and I think I still have the record for Dow, was a 149. Um, but you'd do a, a workout, you'd start at two minutes, and you'd work your way down. And uh, I trained with Dan Gorman, a 1,500-meter guy, and, and Dan and Dan handed me my ass on that workout more times. And it used to drive me, like, to the point that I would, I, I would consider making up injuries to get out of this workout. <laughs> um, like, it was, it just... But in retrospect, looking back at it, I realized that 2012 year, I, I, I finally conquered that workout. I got a few, not all the while, Dan's still beating me up at the whole time. Hmm. Um, but I, I felt confident that I was putting my full effort in. And I think that was a big reason why I, I was able to have the kick I had in 2012. I was able to just turn it on in that last hundred. And that was the other thing I should say about 2012 is I had a horseshoe lodge so far up my ass <laughs> that like, I just every single race that I went into, they played out perfectly. And now, mind you, I put myself in good position, and I, I I I had good speed off the line, which allowed me to do that. And so, I mean, it wasn't completely luck based, but man, like I just had with 200 to go, so many times people would make a move, and I'd let them go, and I'd just be so confident I was going to come back on them, and then they'd start to fall apart with 80 to go, and I'd go by them, and I'd just going by them, I'd suck the energy out of them, and it would just infuse me with speed. I mean, like. And I mean that happened in literally every race that I did well in, including the semi, the the heats in the Olympics. You know, I had um, I had the Polish guy and Simmons go by me um, with like at the 250, 200 meter go mark, and then I just moved out and waited patiently, and then had this per, you know, I didn't have to run out in lane four. I think I had a nice little liner on the outside of lane one to kick, and like, yeah, that the horseshoe goes a long way, hmm. um, but. No, the the the, uh, my, the staple workout, the, the way I always know what shape I'm in, is is a really basic one. It's a 600-200 off of a minute rest, 
um, 600 at eight pace, and then whatever you have left in that two. And uh, three weeks out of London, I had my best ever one of those. I ran a 116.1 and then came back a minute later and ran a 25-second two. And hmm. that, to me, I did that completely solo. Uh, it was at 9 o'clock in the morning. We were in Germany at training camp before the before going into London. And I soloed that, and that was when I knew I was ready to run a – I was going to run a PB at the Olympics. And we really, like, shut it down after that. We just started tapering and getting ready for the big race. And so um, that's my, like – I'm I'm the most scared of that workout. Uh, but I'm also, like – I'm all, when it goes well, that's the most rewarding workout. And I think it's got the most reflection of, like, exactly where you're at in where you, or where you are ready to run in the 800, you can see it in that. You just mentioned uh, Simmons, and, and that kind of reminds me, a couple days ago, I, I was reading this really in-depth story about uh, the 2008 American Trials, uh, the 800 there. I don't know if you remember it. Um, I think the third spot was determined by, you know, someone diving over the line in the American Trials. Like I said, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it was just incredibly crazy it was weeding simmons and i forget the third guy at this point has there mm. been any uh you know crazy races that you've been in you know what's the craziest race that, that you've been in where it was decided in a completely bizarre way or was run completely bizarre my the first time i went to belgium um i think i was 19 or 20 and i did a series over there and it's funny because i've been looking back over the talking with people this year and looking back at that first initial group that I was over there with, and I don't think anyone still exists uh, in the, from the Canadian contingent that was there. I think I'm the last guy that's still around running or was this year. But, um, but getting over there, my first race in Belgium, I think I was in Ghent or I can't remember where it was. I'd have to look it up. But I got out there. They put like 18 guys on the start line, and we got around to the cut-in, and I got hit by three different people. Just like an elbow to the chest, another guy pushed me out of the way, and then one guy kicked me from behind. And I was like, it, it was like, I couldn't believe that this was racing. I was used to just, you know, eight guys in a race. And North American racing isn't like terribly rough or, or and it, I mean, not that there, they don't, doesn't happen, but man, this was like, this was a wake up, like, holy hell, these guys don't kid around and they don't care, especially these guys are all tall, tall people. I'm not a big presence out there. And so, man, I just got beat up. And so that was when I started like really, focusing on front running because man I, I have to stay out of trouble uh, that was actually one of the detriments in my last couple of seasons was the ability I you know these young bucks coming up and being able to get off the line faster than me I was struggling to get out front or to get into the front you know top three or something and so I was getting beat up a lot in workouts they're in uh, races getting pushed around and, uh, which had some bad consequences I think I paid for the like as much as I had great luck in 2012 I've had some bad luck since and so it's all mm -hmm. evening out right Oh, for sure. Uh, but for finish line, when I was in Indianapolis uh, the first year, uh, one of the young guys from Nova Scotia who was up and coming, he, um, you know, I had beaten him in workouts. So I was kind of confident in everything. And he came up on me with 100 to go. We were side by side, and he dove for the line. Like, hmm. he did the full-on two feet off the ground, dove for the line, and he beat me by a hundredth of a second. Oh. And I was like, that was a blow to the ego. I mean, this was back in 2010, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was definitely a blow where I was like, I can't, I can't be losing to the young kids. And so I, I it, it set me up to like a bit of a refocus and a, you know, I got to get some work in here. And I think ultimately a few of those little things that happened were the things that really like drove me to, to 2012 and why I had the success then. 
you've mentioned a bunch of East Coasters. You yourself are, are a Maritimer. Uh, thinking of other guys like Mike Tate, Eric Gillis, uh, guys who, well, Eric Gillis has been around forever, but, you know, Mike Tate's really on, on the way up. Mm-hmm. What, what, what kind of support did you guys have growing up and, and what kind of community, um, you know, that sort of stuff did you, do you guys have, you know, on, on the East Coast? Why is it producing such, you know, a fairly good rate per capita of, of runners out there? Yeah, so the track community is smaller here, which is what I think is partially great about it. We have, and it's growing um, really, you know, when I was in grade 12, there was three tracks in all of the province. And they were all in the HRM. Like we had to petition my grade 12 year to get make sure that our provincials were on a real track and not on a dirt track. Oh. Um, and, and so like it's come a long way since then. There's there's a I mean there's they've put up another half dozen tracks in the last 10 years and um, they're spreading them out. Things are going well. And there's some clubs that are growing really well too. Uh, but when I was when we like the products the, the guys that are on the scene right now. Um, this small community of it, I mean, the community supported each other. And like, ultimately, even though some of us ran for different clubs and, and all this, everyone was still like when we had a Legion team or a Canada games team, there was no notion of, you know, we're from different clubs or any separation. We were just a team. We were a unit. And I think that that's a big part of it is that, um, there's a lot, Nova Scotians have a lot of pride and I'm sure, I know the other maritime provinces do as well. New Brunswick. I don't know. I've never liked New Brunswick, but, hmm. um, I say that jokingly, yeah, but yeah. kind of seriously. Um, <laughs> but as a Nova Scotian, why would I like New Brunswick? I don't care about them. Um, but we, like, we feel we and, and when we go to teams like uh, like Canada Games or Legions and stuff, we feel akin to the other maritime provinces as well. We like we're always seen as sort of like that little province off to the side that no one cares about. And so I, I think it instills a little bit of like, well, this is what we can do. I, I think that's what I always had. My first team was a Legion team. In 2000 and Jesus, 2003 or 2004, and and that was that. Like, we, as a Nova Scotian, we were trying to prove something, and I think that was a. If you instill that young, that sort of underdog thing, I think it produces good athletes. So, um, and that being said, Eric Gillis, I think, is like the greatest Nova Scotian runner of all time, and probably will ever be. Like, his accomplishments are insane. I, I, I can't. Yeah, I think he's the greatest thing ever. Oh, watch, watching him go down that, that final stretch in the Olympic marathon this year, knowing that he was top 10, that I, I can't explain it. That was just, that was a moment, you know? Yeah, that, that's like, and, and you know, I mean, it, it got some notoriety and stuff, I'm sure, but like not to the level I believe it should have. I think that like here in Nova Scotia, we should be having parades for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that, I mean, that's been always been the problem is, um, you know, tracks always, especially out here, that's the other thing, like track is just not, it's not a. It's just not in the public eye out here. Um, it's funny. I was at, trying to get on SMU the other day, and you know we're dealing with football practice, and they're, they're kicking us off the track for. I'm, I'm helping my training partner. I have a masters runner for a training partner here in Halifax who is getting ready for World Masters, and so we're trying to do a workout, and we're just getting kicked off, and like, you know, that wouldn't happen a lot of other places, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen a lot of other places. And we'll go down to the states and show up at a high school or university, and you know, go over and be like, hey, do you guys mind if we jump on? And the first thing they want to know is what our accomplishments are. And then, hey, oh, come talk to our kids. Like, it's, it's great. I love that. And, and that's a problem in Nova Scotia, for sure. I, I wouldn't speak for the other maritime provinces. I'm not sure how they are. But it's, uh, track's definitely not seen as, like, you know, um, it's not an important – it's not the Mooseheads. And if you're not part of the Mooseheads, no one cares. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's it's been a big part of the the narrative uh, this time around. There's been a lot of talk about how the attitude surrounding athletics has changed uh, with our big success yeah. uh, last time around. You've you've lived through that. You've seen um, things from from for quite a while now. Have things changed noticeably? Oh yeah, I mean, um, I, I feel like we had. 2012 was a really good year for everybody. Um, the 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 whole team as a whole did well relative to 2008. So I think the growth was already happening and, and the move was going in that direction. There has been, you know, the, I, there's no question that the 2010 Winter Olympics being in Vancouver was a big part of funding and, and own the podium was becoming more predominant and sport was just in the light in Canada more. So I think support overall has has been growing, um, which is reflective in the performances. Uh, not, not like, I don't think that's exclusively the reason. Um, but I believe, I mean, I really, Peter Erickson came in and took over and, uh, you know, you can love or hate Peter Erickson as a person or, or the way in which he conducts everything. But I mean, since he's taken over, we've, we've been performing consistently better every year at worlds and Olympics and all that stuff. And so I can't, I don't, I think you have to give him certainly a chunk of the credit I think there's a whole bunch of other influences, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I think it's absolutely becoming, you know, like Andre de Grasse is a household name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get asked, you know, there was a time when it was cool enough that I was an Olympian, and now it's like, oh, do you know who Andre is? And that's <laughs> yeah. a great thing for our sport in that, you know, the people just – people have, like, name recognition to athletes. I mean, that's, that, that's a – that hasn't happened back since Donovan Bailey. So, mm-hmm. um I, I think, yeah, I think it's a, there's been a huge shift and hopefully we can keep riding this. And I mean, I, I ultimately come down to I, funding's everything. Athletes need funding. They, they need support. And I still think there's a, a middle ground there um, that's awkward. That's not quite been, you know, I think there just needs to be more money. But there's a middle ground there. Like if you're not quite at that level, but you're still, you're, you could be, there's, a, there's some missing components. You know, like a, a reference to my career, um, I made a few, I made a, a world juniors, a few francophones and Olympics. Um, but I, I never, in my 10 year career, I was never carded for more than one year in a row. Hmm. I never maintained my carding two years in a row. And it was kind of like, so I'd, I'd have some success and I'd have some support and then I'd lose it and I'd be starting from scratch again. And, you know, like constantly struggling financially to try to figure out how am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to, you know, what camps can I, can I, can and can I go on because of the lack of funding? And I mean, that made things hard. And like, not to, I, I honestly believe that, you know, if I had support right through or, or more support right through, um, and I took some of that, that financial stress away, um, I'm certain I could have had more success at different times. Um, so I think that we're de- definitely taking huge steps in the right direction, but, um, we still got some a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Now you're in the coaching game. Um, the other the other guest on the on the show this week, uh, Krista Haunty, who's just really really on the rise, looking to probably make some some national teams really really soon. Uh, in my opinion, I really really on the come up. Do you have any advice for those guys? For the young guys coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's an interesting one too. Um, for me, like, and and this will this will this is as vain as it gets. For me, it's motivation, right? You gotta have motivation. You gotta be mm-hmm. running for something. And whether it's a girl, to impress a girl, or it's, you know, to get the approval of your parents, or whatever it is, 
You mm-hmm. got to have that and know what it is and, and, and push for it. And as soon as you make that accomplishment, you got to just take an, a step a little higher. But motivation is everything. You got to like, why are you training? And I, I can, I can, I can name names as to the girls I tried to impress over the years. <laughs> and I mean, that was a big part of it. it. It's not like, it's not like it's the only reason I did track, but it helped me get through those workouts and, and getting into those races and dig in deep. And I always hear lots of people say, you know, you got to run for yourself or you got to do, but that's all, that's all silly. That's, those are, those are great quotes that are on posters, but you got to run <laughs> for girls or boys, whatever you're into. And you got to like, and you got to enjoy it. That's the big thing for me. I've had a blast doing this. Um, you know, I, I'm, and I've gotten myself in more trouble along the way because, because sometimes the fun becomes a little more important than the performance. Um, and so finding that balance obviously is key. But, um, yeah, I, I've had more fun than, than I would have if I didn't pursue this. Um, and so, yeah, motivation's everything. And so that's my thing I'd say to any kid is just, like, figure it out what, what can drive you and then just pursue that to the end. Um, and hopefully track is something that will help with that. And that being said, for all the young men out there, and young ladies for that matter, because there's nothing sexier than uh, a talented runner, girl, like – my point is, is find that person and, and hopefully they like track and show them what you can do. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Quick sidebar. Uh, you know, I was, I was going to mention it, uh, you know, this interview's gone a little bit long, but Hey, I'm okay with it. Cause you know, you're, you're an interesting guy. I I've been reading this book, um, about, uh, Joe Strummer, part of the clash, wicked stories mm-hmm. in it. I, I was thinking, you know, track guys, do they have these wicked stories? Do they have these wicked road stories? Because they spend just as much time on the road. Do you have any stories like that, you know, that uh, that are just crazy? Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of stories. Um, there, like, I have a lot of stories that I, you know, that I would never put out on a public forum uh, <laughs> for anyone to hear. So there's those ones. So 100%. And my book will come out in the next 10 years. And you'll be able to read it all, and I'll change everyone's name, and I won't be in the, you know. The problem with me telling stories now is that, like, a lot of the people that are involved are still part of the sport, and I'm not going to, I can't throw anyone under a bus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, like, some of the, like, I'll tell you this, two of the greatest teams I've ever been on are the Frank, my, both the Francophone Games teams we were on. Um, you know, like, and, and just having, oh, my gosh, yeah, the... the I don't want to use the word debauchery, but the <laughs> the fun we had, the craziness we got up to, um, in both I was in Nice and Lebanon, and like I mean it was like, you know, I've never seen anything like some of it. I mean like we we had we got with a driver in Lebanon one time, and I don't know if you, so in Beirut there's just no traffic law. It doesn't exist. They don't have lights. Oh. It truly might is right, and it's you know, whoever drives the most aggressive gets through first. Mm-hmm. We had a driver that, I mean, I've never been so close to death in my life on several occasions. He he had no concept of reality, um, of like he was he was essentially playing a video game in his own brain, but <laughs> with living people in the car. And I remember being in the car with Mark Dillon, the high jumper, the girls all in the back seat crying, hiding their eyes, <laughs> screaming, stop. Mark and I, mind you, being slightly under the influence of alcohol, thinking this was like the craziest but greatest thing ever and like laughing and this guy literally every time he went through an ex- intersection would go checkpoint like he's <laughs> playing a video game like those those mem- memories like that and like thinking like wow i can't believe i got out of beirut because like i almost died twice in that car 
um, yeah, there's there's more stories out there. Um, I think that I like. I had a bit of a reputation. I, I got myself into some trouble along the way, and, and not like anything serious, but um, you know, I like to party. So, yeah, there, there's there's lots of stories. There's no questions. One more question for you: When it comes to running, how important yep. is the facial hair? Oh, it's everything. No, this and this is the reference. It's not running. It's intimidating your competitors. Okay, <laughs> facial hair is everything, and it needs to be groomed. Boys need to learn how to trim their neck. No one should have hair growing down over their Adam's apple. That's terrible. Mm. You, need to, you need to be groomed well. Um, length isn't everything. You know, shape is key. Um, but no, I, I, you know that, like, I, haven't, I haven't had a clean, shaven top lip since I was in high school. Um, so uh, facial hair is a pretty, like, important thing to me. Um, I, and I respect I, you, there's a few guys in track and field that have had some good ones. And I'll tell you, I've had my fingers through a lot of men's beards because <laughs> I respect a good beard. I, 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 like, the first time, like, two or three years ago when Will Lear, really, that first big beard he had, mm. he and I sat and, like, we literally stood embracing each other by holding each other's beards and touching them. Like, it's a, it, it's one of those things, like, when you see motorcycle guys, two Harleys drive by, they sort of nod at each other to acknowledge that, you know, we're both on Harleys. Well, mm-hmm. beard guys do that too. If you have a beard at a certain length, you sort of get, like you see him in the airport, you give a nod to that guy to say, hey, I respect that. Um, and so for me, like, I, I, the biggest reason I've had a beard is because, A, I look like I'm 12 when I don't. <laughs> B, everyone tells me I need to shave my beard. And that just motivate. again, it comes back to motivation. I'm just mm-hmm. motivated to prove people, no, I'm going to keep this beard. My mother, my poor mother, holy <laughs> hell I've put her through. But like her entire, she is, all she wants is to have her like clean shaven, you know, son. And I, and because of that, I have had this beard for, for years now. Mm. And so I, I'm actually, I'm right, I'm letting it grow in big. And the only reason I've ever trimmed it or cut it off you know, the few times that I have after it's been long is poor decision making under the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, I get you get a few drinks and someone says you should shave your beard and you're like that's a great idea and then you wake up the next day and you're like what the hell did I do to myself? <laughs> it's been one of my like I, you want to that's that's another one. You want to talk about regrets? My beard shaving my beard off in 20, <laughs> 2014 or 2013 that summer of 2013 mm-hmm. that was that's one of my biggest regrets in running was getting rid of that beard. It was beautiful. Oh, well, what can I say? He's he's an Olympian, uh, a future author, which I will, you know, you can you can put me right down right now. I'm pre-ordering it right now for when you write a book. I'm definitely going to pick it up. Um, facial hair sure. connoisseur, uh, a girl chaser for the past, I would say, probably about 20 years now. He's Jeff Harris. And, uh, you know, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for being on the show this week, man. Yeah, not a problem, man. I appreciate you having me. The Terminal Mile presents Track Fact or Fiction with Brand Statchel. He knows stuff about running and science and stuff. You know, nothing about ice baths really sounds appealing at all to me, but they're one of those things that have been really around forever. However, with new studies kind of throwing, you know, conflicting information at us, I need to know, ice baths, track fact or fiction? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've done them before. I've had athletes do them before, and I've seen, everybody's obviously seen, like, you know, the football crews taking big team ice baths and stuff, but really is that five minutes of freezing and cursing about how cold you are really helping? But, uh, you know, 
At first, you started seeing ice bass popping up everywhere. All the top universities and top teams have them. But now you're seeing more and more uh, top teams and top athletes retracting from them. Uh, but that being said, there is a place for them, and I'll explain that. So, um, once again, we look back at optimal performance and how we adapt to stimuli. Because as, as coaches and athletes and, and support staff, that's what we're always trying to do, is how do we support the athlete to adapt to the training for optimal performance when they need it. Um, so, we kind of believe that ice baths decrease our inflammation process, such as the production of free radicals and oxidative stress, as we talked about earlier. And if we believe these to be our biochemical markers that aid us to adopt our training plan, do we really want to mess with these? Um, the science is still not 100% convinced either way, but anecdotally, we're seeing uh, move away from ice baths from top pro teams, sports teams, coaches, at least during the heavy training phases to ensure optimal adaptation. Um, so maybe not having an ice bath during your top peak training load when you're at your highest volume and, and intensity on your block and tier. So for example, like a month of August where we're all getting ready for cross, but looking at uh, getting ready for OU, CI, Canadian cross, it might be a little bit uh, more advantageous then. Um, but in the end, the, the science of human performance is always going to be ongoing and new discoveries, but where it stands right now, our best choice uh, as athletes, coaches, and support staff is to periodize our recovery tools with our training and utilize them during times that we are not looking for ma maximal adaptation, but rather maximal performance during a competi competition phase due to maximal adaptation during the training phase. With the caveat of injury, so this is super important for ice baths. Uh, if an injury pops up, then the most appropriate recovery modalities need to be used to allow the athlete to heal and, if applicable, continue training to the best of their abilities. So this is where ice baths can be a bit beneficial similar to icing uh, the area. But at the end of the day, we all want to do everything we can to perform at our best. And that doesn't matter if it's an Olympic level, a cross country level, or a local road race. And by making sure we don't use modalities that work against our body's adaptation process, we can all achieve that no matter what. What's the word on, uh, on bubble baths? Are they okay? <laughs> I don't know. I think the aromatherapy might help if you get some good smelling oils in there. If you have a running myth that you want checked out, be sure to send us a tweet at the Terminal Mile. Crystal Hanty is a guy who, in my opinion, you should be watching for. He's freshly into the post-collegiate phase of his career, and Chris was within one second of securing an Olympic qualifying time in the steeple this year. With a lot of years ahead of him, expect big things. So 2016, the, the track season is pretty much all wrapped up at this point. I guess, first of all, how would you, how would you summarize the year overall and, uh, and just, you know, give me a, a basic arc of what, of what happened this year? Yeah, so this year, uh, I mean, with the Olympics on the horizon, it was uh, very exciting. Um, just, uh, I left uh, I left the past season off at a pretty good note. Um, I had run a, a personal best in my last, uh, my second last steeple of the year in Finland. So I was uh, just, uh, just under four seconds off of the Olympic standard. So that was really the goal um, for the whole year leading into it from, you know, cross-country season, which is... Uh, um, it's a little bit uh, less uh, intense, but definitely still, uh, I thought it was important and a great way just to, you know, build that base for, uh, for the outdoor season. Um, through indoors, uh, I focused on uh, trying to run some quick 3Ks just to get a little bit of that flat speed um, so that hopefully I would be in the best uh, situation uh, to attack the standard um, as the season uh, went on. So I, um, I went out to Flagstaff in April. Uh, that was for the first time I've been out there. 
Mm. Um, and that was a really, really cool experience. Um, just a lot of Canadians were out there, um, like a lot of them. So there's always uh, people to run with and always uh, lots of people to talk to talk with at the track. And um, there's been, I guess, over the years, I've had a lot of teammates and uh, seen a lot of things in the media about Flagstaff, about the town, about, uh, you know, the culture there. And it was just really cool to uh, I'd go to Macy's, the coffee shop, and run on those mm-hmm. trails and everything. And it was just a really kind of great um, training camp to get my uh, uh, self in the best position for that outdoor season. And I thought it was uh, pretty successful. I came out of it probably uh, the fittest that I'd been uh, through April. So, uh Pretty much right when May started, uh, I flew over to uh, Stanford University to run my first outdoor meet, outdoor track and field race. And uh, yeah, from there, it was just uh, going after standard. Um, so so my first race at uh, Peyton Jordan, it was good. Uh, a little bit off of what I had uh, opened or finished the last season off at. And, uh, you know, in the, in the good zone, uh, about uh, an 840s some odd race so uh not quite where i wanted to be but you know uh positive start to the season um and then two weeks later i went and ran a new personal best at the hoka 1-1 uh middle distance classic hmm. um which was great uh, i mean to you know have so much success at the beginning of the season um i was then just one second off the olympic standard and it was only uh you know the third week of may so i was thinking uh things are really going great let's go let's attack some more races so um very quickly thereafter um i had flown back to toronto from los angeles i spent one night at home in uh, mississauga and then headed back to pearson and uh flew out to europe on that uh, monday morning and i i aimed for two races over there uh one in belgium at uh flanders cup meet um and that's kind of like uh i i consider them more uh twilight meets but uh, if, you know, uh, Olympic finalists and just, uh, you know, 30 countries were participating in, uh, you know, 1500 meter night. So mm. it's pretty crazy. A lot of athletes, pretty hectic. Sometimes you don't know what heat you're in until, uh, 10 minutes before the race, but, uh, definitely really, really high quality racing. Um, and that was, uh, that was an okay race. Uh, still, uh, didn't crack the personal best ran, uh, ran okay, but, um, you know, it was only, you know, four or five days after the plane. So I was thinking, uh, got one under my legs, and then the next one will be a really good, uh, really good shot. Um, so after the race in Belgium, I went over to Spain, uh, and the next week I raced at uh, the Meeting Iberoamericano in Huelva, uh, which was really cool. It was my first mm-hmm. time in Spain. Uh, I was traveling with uh, Ross Proudhart at this time, so mm. uh, he was going after the 5K standard. I was going after the steeplechase standard. So we were kind of, you know, sharing this similar uh, experience with each other, uh, kind of going through a lot of the same emotions throughout the season. So it was cool to um, to have a buddy to travel with and race with as well. Um, and this race was a really, it was a really good opportunity. And uh, so unfortunately, I mean, maybe fortunately, the race was really fast in Spain. And uh, the leaders, uh, you know, they ended up running around 8.10 or 8.15 or something odd like that. Uh, and it was really great to be in a high-class race like that. But unfortunately, the clock uh, stopped every lap uh, to display the split to the leader. So I didn't really have a uh, I didn't really have a sense of where I was at uh, during the race as it was ongoing. Um, and when I finished, I think I may have thrown my arms in the air and celebrated because I thought 
I really did think that I uh, hit the Olympic standard, but uh, about 20 minutes later, I saw the final results, and I was actually about uh, five seconds off of it. Mm. Um, but I think that there were a lot of posi- positives that came out of that race. Um, I was able to work with my uh, sports psychologist, Lisa Veloce, um, leading into that race, and uh, it was able to put me in a really positive headspace, probably the best, um, I guess, mental uh, toughness and just positive self-talk uh, that I had um, really uh, prepared for in any race leading up to then. Um, and it really helped me because uh, this season has been a lot of emotions, a lot of uh, nervousness going into the races. And uh, as weeks were, uh, you know, uh, weeks were continuing and we were getting closer to Edmonton, um, I was getting more nervous and I think I was losing a little bit of the fun and the excitement of, uh, you know, really what I was uh, out there trying to do. So she helped mm-hmm. me uh, get that uh, mental edge, I think. And although I didn't uh, hit the standard in that race, um, I think I was just uh, much more prepared for the races to come after that. Um, so that uh, brought us into June. Uh, I decided when I came back, um, I had probably one last shot at uh, running uh, the Olympic standard, and that was in Guelph at the uh, Speed River Inferno. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hyped up a lot. Um, I did a couple of interviews before it, and it was uh, really exciting, you know, kind of a, you know, could be a really cool ending or uh, step to this journey of doing it in front of my family, doing it in front of my friends at home. Um, and unfortunately, I just didn't have it that day. Um, I don't know exactly uh, what happened, but uh, I was trying to think about it, you know, after the race and just kind of decided um, you can analyze it a lot, but just for whatever reason, I just didn't really have it. So I didn't run a very good race and uh, didn't hit the standard and was pretty disappointed. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I had a lot of cool experiences uh, leading up till then, so um, the season, going into it, I knew that the Olympics was my standard, but I also knew that uh, making the Olympic team would be um, a lot of things in my control and a lot of them out of my control, you know. Uh, I couldn't control how other athletes were doing. I couldn't control uh, if they were injured or, um, you know, ultimately the selection procedure from Athletics Canada. So um, I just tried to focus on what I could do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came up with a couple goals. Ultimately, the, the Olympics was the number one goal. But I also came up with, you know, B goals and C goals just uh, so that if I didn't make the Olympic team, I wouldn't feel like the complete uh, the season was a failure because um, I really did have some really great races and was able to tap into a really good mental place that I hadn't been there before. So um, I was pretty disappointed, uh, to be honest, after uh, the race in Guelph and uh, – um, but after a few days and, um, after talking with my coach, Dave, we hatched kind of a last chance plan of, uh, going after it in Edmonton, mm-hmm. um, which was, uh, understandably pretty, pretty difficult to, uh, to have, uh, achieved seeing as, you know, Edmonton has a low grade altitude. So the performance would have to be the equivalent of, you know, maybe an 825, 826 race or something like that. But I really thought that although I was really punching at that level, um, it was something that was possible. So uh, I uh, went out to Edmonton with kind of uh, 
a last uh, last uh, ditch hail mary effort and mm-hmm. uh, tried to do something uh, that I thought was pretty pretty cool. Like um, I led the race at, uh, in Edmonton for I think about. I'm not sure how long I made it at the front. Yeah. Maybe uh, four four laps, fifteen hundred meters, uh, before I was overtaken. Um, I think I was staying on the pace uh, pretty decently well, but uh, it was it was you know difficult to uh, lead and try to hit standard and come into the top three all at a championship style race. So I faded, and uh, you know I ended up in I think nine minutes or something. But um, I I'm really kind of happy that I did do that um just I didn't really leave any stone unturned and uh uh really uh tried to make the best of any opportunity that I had to try to hit the Olympic standard and uh that was cool to do you know I got some pretty nice uh Facebook profile pictures and stuff like that too out of it. <laughs> so um it was a cool experience and I mean just being there with other teammates uh it was bittersweet obviously because I didn't make the team but uh, you know, I had a lot of friends that did and a lot of teammates that I've trained with over the past uh, five or six years here in Guelph. So um, it was cool. And, uh, yeah, to end out the season, I just decided, you know, I didn't make the Olympics, but I'm still going to hit one more uh, hit one more race. So once again, I came home for uh, one evening uh, to Mississauga and then flew out to Belgium one more time uh, and raced at uh, the – um, I raced at uh, Houston in Belgium, which mm. uh, I have, you know, seen before the results, and it was a pretty uh, cool race. I think um, there's been a lot of uh, really awesome performances there before. A lot of uh, our teammates at PB, a lot of Canadians at PB there. So I thought it was going to be, you know, I didn't make the team, but if I could hit the standard, you know, it'd be a little, uh, a little uh, um, icing on the cake of the season that um, was still going really well. And uh, once again, you know, it didn't happen. I ran a pretty good time for the season, but still uh, not quite where, uh, where I wanted to be. But overall, I mean, I, uh, I kind of hit a breakthrough at the beginning of uh, last year's season and uh, wasn't able to replicate that prior to in the season. So this year is really all about, you know, normalizing a new uh, level of performance kind of in the low 830s for steeple and, uh, you know, making that the new normal. So hopefully, you know, next season or in the future, I'll be able to uh, punch through and uh, hopefully, you know, make some of those uh, big senior teams in the years to come. Well, for sure. I, you know, I don't, I don't think you have anything to be disappointed with. I mean, you, you, you seem to be on, you know, a really good trend upwards. I have to ask, you know, since the Siebel field is, is at a pretty good depth in Canada with, uh, you know, Chris and Alex and, uh, and, um, Matt Hughes and, uh, and Taylor Milne, who, who we'll get to in, in just a second. But, uh, you know, taking a look at that from, say, the World Champs next year to Tokyo 2020, where do you think you fit in with that, uh, with that deep field as far as performing on the, on the international stage? Um, I think I'm definitely, um, someone who's poised to uh, be in the mix at uh, the Nationals in top three. And, you know, hopefully uh, if everything goes well come 2020, uh, be competitive at the Olympic Games as well. Um, I think that, like, the steeple in Canada over the last um, maybe six years or so has undergone kind of a really cool transformation um, just with, uh, you know, the level of uh, excellence uh, being pushed and pushed. And I, I think Matt Hughes has, you know, 
been at the forefront of that, you know, breaking the Canadian record, winning NCAAs a couple of times. So it was, uh, uh, he kind of has been leading the push and uh, the guys at Guelph as well. They've been, you know, right there along, uh, setting new personal bests. And it's kind of been this cool, it's a cool time to run the steeple, I think, because, um, uh, you know, everyone's striving for excellence. And uh, I've been, you know, training with these guys in Guelph, with Taylor and with Alex for, um, the past six years, and even when I, even before I came to Guelph in my rookie year, I took the go bus up from Mississauga to hop in for a couple of workouts, leaving uh, in my last uh, high school season. Hmm. So, and I've been, you know, getting a little bit closer on the workouts and a little bit closer each year. And I think that uh, after this season, um, there's going to be, you know, some turnover in uh, athletes who are retiring, and uh, I think a lot of people are kind of, even myself included, you know. Four years is a long way to commit to, so um, I think next year we might see a little bit of a change up in who's still competing in the steeple and you know other events as well. So, uh, seeing as I'm one of the younger athletes in the event, um, I, yeah, I think I'm you know poised to uh, be a top contender and hopefully hit those standards and hopefully uh, make the teams and you know uh, continue what uh, those guys have started in the steeple and. You know, not started. There's been a lot of uh, great Canadian steeplers throughout history. I think actually at the first Olympic Games, even uh, Canada won the first gold medal. So uh, back in like 1896. So there's been a lot of great steeplers for a long time in Canada. Um, but there was maybe a little drought there uh, through the late 2000s uh, when we didn't send any uh, male athletes to the Olympics. So it's cool to see the team filling out and, uh, you know, even guys behind me who are, you know, uh, younger as well, pushing uh, uh, with like Antoine Thibault and mm-hmm. a lot of the guys in the NCAA. So it's uh, it's an exciting time to be a steepler in Canada, I think. Well, speaking of, uh, of Taylor Milne, I had him earlier on this year, and, and he was kind of, I think he was on the fence, kind of leaning towards <laughs> retirement this year. He wanted to see how it went. Um, I don't know how that worked out for him, but I imagine you guys as teammates probably trained pretty closely. Uh, you know, if he does retire, what is that retirement going to, to mean for you? And uh, what kind of legacy do you think he's going to leave behind when he leaves the sport? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, Taylor's been uh, probably, like, one of the best workout partners, um, you know, you could ever ask for. He, um, I, don't, I, I don't know if I've seen anyone work as hard as he has in workouts, really. Um, so just, you know... Uh, be having someone to push you, uh, that there will definitely be a loss uh, in Guelph and the whole training group. Uh, you know, we integrate a lot of the time between the 15 and the 5K to steeplers. Um, so, uh, in that respect, uh, if he does continue, if he does uh, decide to retire, then there'll be um, a little bit of a hole there. But I, I anticipate that he will uh, stay involved in the sport. Uh, he's been uh, volunteering and helping out with uh, the varsity team over the past couple of years uh, with the strength and conditioning program. Um, he's also been helping out with our uh, strength and conditioning program for the post collegiate here in Guelph. Mm. So he's been, you know, having his hand in a lot of different pots. He also runs uh, the youth program, or not the youth program, I guess, uh, like the uh, tight and junior, uh, really little guys, and uh, you know, ages four to nine in Guelph. Uh, he runs the stream team. And he also coaches uh, some masters runners uh, outside of that. So he's very involved in the community and in the sport. So uh, while his retirement might mean, uh, you know, I lose one uh, workout partner, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think that, you know, his impact in, uh, you know, in the community and just uh, in supporting uh, elite athletes all the way down to the grassroots will uh, continue to be uh, really prominent. And uh, I think he'll, you know, if he does have more time on his hands to pursue coaching or whatever he ends up doing, I think just that, um, just that, you know, commitment and determination that he's shown in the workouts, I think, you know, he'll be really successful in whatever he does. Well, I, you know, I, that leads me to to another point that I, I want to talk about. You, you talked about both the the Guelph team and the Speed River Club. There, I would say that they're they're pretty intertwined in in probably the minds of of most uh, of most track fans in this country. What's interesting about them is that that running has long been perceived as kind of an individual sport. Um, I would say that uh, that both the Guelph team and the Speed River Club really challenge that and uh, and almost make it more uh, you know coming from a team perspective with, you know, team tactics and, and that sort of stuff. Can you really, um, you know, elaborate on the thinking behind that and, uh, and why you guys think that that's a really good idea? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was very, it was a very unique experience for me coming from high school. I was, you know, uh, never a team qualifier to OFSA, uh, in cross country. I was an individual, even within my high school, you know, um, one of the only kids that would be running, uh, uh, going off and all that stuff. So coming to Guelph and, uh, getting to that, uh, you know, community where it is a team aspect and everyone is supporting each other. It's, uh, pretty unique and it was pretty cool. Um, I think that, you know, running is, uh, it's a very personal thing. It's a very, uh, you know, you have a lot of time to think about things and you have a lot of time on yourself and it's, um, when you look at it as an individual sport, it, you know, it makes sense because you compete generally individually on the track, but um, definitely, you know, from that first cross country season at Guelph, uh, just, you know, the team camaraderie and uh, you know, how you support each other uh, when you're working out, when you're racing, when you're just, you know, doing your studies or just hanging out with your friends. Uh, I really created a really cool community where, um, you know, excellence was being pushed and uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, veterans and with the post leaders as well there who are often integrated in the workouts. There's always someone to run with, always someone to aspire to be uh, like or uh, try to run as fast as or, you know, even as a rookie trying to, you know, stick your nose in there with some of the Olympians or, you know, mm. something like that. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, definitely the cross-country uh, team culture uh, was very different uh, than what I had experienced, but I just really fell in love with it. And I think that that kind of team culture, uh, which we have, uh, and I think a lot of teams, you know, in the CIS and in the NCAA have that team culture. Um, but, you know, we've been trying to, you know, keep that throughout the other, uh, uh, the other season, indoor track, where it is also team scored, but, you know, in outdoor track as well, where um, of the three sports, it is, you know, the most individual um, at, uh, you know, the international or national level. Um, and it's, it's just been really cool, um, to see, uh, a lot of my teammates really successful. And, uh, just going back to, uh, in the summer of 2015, when I ran my personal best, uh, in Finland, uh, at the end of the season, that was right off the heels of, I think, uh, five of my teammates uh, running personal best uh, the day before at Houston. I mean, at the same time, you know, Charles PT was running 
uh, in Monaco for the first time. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, positive energy for Canadians in the sport. And it really, you know, uh, propelled me to have uh, the best race of my life. So, um, yeah, I think it just creates a cool culture where um, dreaming for things that you might have thought of as uh, lofty goals are that mm-hmm. much more tangible because you have people around you that have gone through the uh, gone through the experience of achieving those things. So it just makes it seem like, you know, maybe me too. For sure, for sure. Now, there was a lot of talk about this, uh, you know, in the lead up to the Olympics and during the Olympics this year. Uh, as someone who's just so close to representing the country at one of these premier meets, uh, what do you think about the development system in Canada right now? Do you think that uh, you personally have been hooked up with, you know, good enough resources and, and perhaps monetary support to to uh, achieve and, and perhaps, you know, go on to that next level? I think that the support system uh, in Canada is pretty good for supporting uh, for supporting uh, their athletes as they try to uh, go on and do the things that uh, I'm trying to do and my teammates and, uh, you know, the other athletes who are making those teams are doing. Um, you know, between the CIS system, which, you know, over the past uh, probably six or seven years, uh, the standards for excellence in terms of Equally equated to what the standards are for the 3K or the 1500, or just the performance level at CIs or at OUAs or any of the other conference meets. I think it's just been heightened. So, uh, in that respect, I think um, the competition level in the CIS has been uh, a very, a very worthy, uh, uh, to, very worthy uh, in comparison to the NCAA level. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that uh, having the two systems has been really beneficial for Canadians because it just provides a lot of different opportunities for uh, an athlete or a student to seek out um, whatever they're looking for uh, in a university setting. Um, because I know there's a lot of debate, obviously, a lot of the time about CIS versus uh, NCAA. And I think that um, there's no right answer for any one athlete. And... Uh, just having, making sure that uh, someone who's coming out of high school uh, knows what they're looking for and what their priorities are and uh, assessing all the different schools without biases and just trying to treat them all um, objectively based on their best criteria, um, you know, is a really good way of finding uh, whatever works for you. Um, and in that respect, I think that even within the CIS, uh, I think there might be some things changing with scholarship money. Um, I know the women's uh, hockey program in the CIS uh, is now, as I believe, giving out more bigger scholarships than what um, uh, generally the other sports have been uh, constrained by. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, definitely a positive move forward and able to, you know, uh, compare to the NCAA on a monetary scholarship basis. Um, so that's a positive for support within the system. But at the same time, I think the tuition is obviously uh, more subsidized in Canada based on tax dollars and all that. So um, from a monetary standpoint, I think the NCAA and Canadian systems, uh, depending on scholarships and everything like that, is uh, they're comparable. And, yeah, I guess uh, once you leave kind of the university system or you are looking at uh, those other uh, funding um, opportunities, I think it's been pretty good. I think that... Um, Definitely having objective uh, standards and those sorts of things are uh, the best way of uh, quantifying 
different event groups and different genders where uh, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, equate, uh, I guess, with the points and all that. It is more uh, easier to uh, compare different event groups. But, uh, yeah, having um, those standards and all that in selecting an athlete for, you know, a quest for gold or for recording, uh, that's positive and um, definitely, you know, you'd always love to see more support uh, for athletes that are trying to pursue uh, athletics after they graduate um, mm. because there's what's out there is good, but I feel like sometimes there's a little zone in the, in the middle of before you're carded or um, before you have the quest for gold or something like that where uh, you're trying to make the decision, should I continue running or uh, should I, you know, uh, start a uh, career or something like that. So um, I've been fortunate of uh, finding a really great opportunity as well where I'm working in a marketing company for around 25 hours a week. But um, that's, I think I've been very fortunate in that, of finding a company that really understands uh, kind of the other goals that I have in my life in athletics and, uh, you know, uh, accommodating for the practice schedule and travel schedule that I have. And that's generally, you know, I think more difficult to, uh, to find something like that than, um, uh, than it should be. So, yeah, maybe it's uh, having uh, more corporate leadership that understands uh, athletes that are uh, trying to pursue these things and uh, have more flexible work schedules or, um, yeah, having potentially more opportunities for funding. Um, I know the Canada Now Fund is great. Uh, there's uh, the CIBC Next program. So I think as, you know, there's wrap-up after the 2016 Olympics, uh, it would be great to see, um, you know, from the government and from the corporate level, uh, maybe a little bit more opportunities for uh, helping our athletes uh, bridge the gap between, you know, 2017 to 2020. For sure, for sure. I think it was about a year ago, maybe a little bit less than a year, but not much. I ran into you at a uh, road race up in uh, up in Stratford. Uh, I think it was sometime in early October, if if I remember correctly. What yeah. you know, you know, what does your off season training look like? Is is it road races? Is it cross country? I mean, like, what do you do when you're not doing outdoor track? Um. So I'm just kind of getting back into things after uh, taking an extended break. Uh, this year I took four weeks off running, hmm. uh, like zero running really. I kind of got into the Olympics and, uh, was watching a lot, uh, was inspired by the mountain bike. So went on a couple of pretty hard rides that were pretty difficult, but, uh, but yeah, for, for four weeks, I, uh, took that completely off. Um, and that's a new thing for me. Um, when I was in uh, university, it was really generally, uh, one week off and then one week kind of a transition week where you're running, you know, maybe 30 to 40 minutes, uh, three or four times a week. Hmm. But I just found that because the cross-country season isn't a, you know, priority season for me, although it is still important in terms of building that base, I'm not going through a uh, championship season. So um, I allow my body just to have those extended periods of time to rest. Um, and uh, I, I did that for the first time last year. I took actually... I was planning on taking four weeks, but then got my wisdom teeth out, and then there were, you know, complications a little bit with the healing. So I ended up taking six weeks off um, after the season, and it seemed like that was actually, you know, it worked out pretty well this season. So I, uh, I've continued that, um, and now I'm just kind of in the phase where I'm doing some easy running uh, through the next couple weeks, 
um, probably towards the middle or end of September, I'll hop into some workouts and really just trying to focus on that for uh, maybe the next six or so weeks. Um, I have my eyes on a couple road races, maybe a cross-country race um, through, the, uh, through the fall. Um, definitely looking forward to running at Kingston again and uh, hopefully trying to uh, be up with uh, the top group there. Because um, I think that's, you know, an area that for myself uh, in trying to hit uh, the standards and uh, what's best for my steeplechase performance in the future is uh, trying to focus a little bit more on that aerobic power, uh, maybe trying to motivate myself for some longer tempos or a little bit higher mileage uh, through the fall, um, maybe making that 10K cross-country race uh, uh, more of a priority than it's been so that I have a motivation to kind of build my engine. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's not going to be very, uh, very intense through the fall. Um, I'll be, you know, hopping in with the University of Guelph uh, athletes as they prepare for OUAs and CIS, and uh, it'll be fun. Like, always really cool, even though I'm not in the program anymore, just to, you know, see the team dynamic and meet the new athletes and stuff uh, mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, through the indoor season as well, I found last year I was able to race, I think, three times. Um, and it wasn't a lot of racing, but I found just being able to have, uh, you know, a race every three weeks, uh, to key on, uh, while having some good training sessions in between, uh, was really, was, uh, really positive in, uh, trying to knock that flat 3k time down. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, looking ahead to next year, I'll, I don't want to reinvent the wheel if it's already working, but I'll try to, you know, tweak a couple things. Uh, maybe try to aim to run a 5K at some point next uh, summer, um, just to once again try to go after that a little bit power, and yeah, um, try to kind of make it happen uh, in 2017. Crystal Hanty, he is uh, he's, I guess you would say, uh, up on the come up, and uh, and you know I wish you best of luck, man. Uh, next year, World Championship year, Thank really you very much, re- really hoping to see you there, man. And, uh, and thanks a lot for, for taking the time to be on the show this week. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to my guests this week, Chris and Jeff, for taking the time to be on the show, as well as to Tracky for their ongoing support, and to you for listening. Be sure to check us out online on Twitter, at the Terminal Mile, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, of course, Tracky.ca. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production.